Welcome to the Weekend University podcast, and this is your host, Niall McKeever. The Weekend University was set up to make the best psychology lectures available to the general public. To do this, we organize lecture days once per month, where attendees get a full day of talks from the UK's leading psychologists, authors, and university professors. Our podcast features in-depth interviews with our speakers, so you can learn more about their work. To keep updated on upcoming events and new lectures, you can sign up for the mailing list at theweekenduniversity.com. This episode features a lecture on Carl Jung and his approach to the psych from Dr. Kevin Liu. Dr. Liu is the director of the MA in Jungian and Post-Jungian Studies at the University of Essex and a former member of the Executive Committee for the International Association for Jungian Studies. His publications include articles and chapters on Jung's relationship to the discipline of history, critical assessments of the theory of cultural complexes, and Jungian perspectives on graphic novels and their adaptation to film. Enjoy the show! So today we're going to give hopefully a, a very brief introduction to the psychology of C.G. Jung, but with specific emphasis on his notion of individuation, and tied to that is the idea of the archetypal self. Right, so Carl Gustav Jung, born 1875 and died in 1961. He's a Swiss, or was, sorry, a Swiss psychiatrist, founder of analytical psychology, and one-time collaborator of Freud, right? Now, the collaboration with Freud a lot of the Jungians, especially Professor Sonusham Dasani at UCL, wants to move away from that, right? Because Jung was an independent thinker in his own right. A lot of the, the kind of academic work and contextual work is seeing who influenced Jung other than Freud and really the, the identity he carved him, uh, for himself even before he met Freud. Um, but for all intents and purposes, many people will know Jung as one of the renegade disciples of Freud. Now, just very briefly as well, as a bit of background, some terms I'm going to be using. So when I use the term depth psychology, it's an umbrella term for the talking therapies, right? So when I'm saying depth psychology, it encompasses Jung's approach, Freud's approach, um, and perhaps some other approaches that may not be as popular these days. Alfred Adler, although I know some of you probably, you know, are really entrenched in Adler's thinking, very interesting stuff, as well as object relations, etc. When I say psychoanalysis, I'm referring specifically to Anyone? Well, well done. And analytical psychology, we're referring specifically uh, to Jung's ideas. So, Jung is known for introducing many words or ideas uh, into the cultural mainstream, and it's really become um, a part of our kind of everyday way of speaking. So, psychological types. Everyone here of psychological types? Yes, okay, that's Jung. Uh, complexes. Yep, that was Jung's innovation introduced by him to Freud. Archetypes. Yes, yes the collective unconscious. Yes. Oh, you're proving everything then. <laughs> Introversion, extroversion. Yeah. That's Jung, right? Uh, and then obviously the shadow, the anima, the animus, yeah. uh, individuation, and the self. Okay, so just let's go through his family background a bit. Again, not in great detail, but hopefully it builds the narrative when we're kind of moving into his concepts and seeing how many different facets of his life converge and uh, contribute to the formulation of his ideas. So he was the son of a village pastor, 
Reverend Paul Achilles Young, and his mother's name was Emily Young, maiden name prize work. Just remember the last name because you know, it comes up again a little later on. Young's grandfather of the same name was a physician. He was the rector of Basel University and grandmaster of the Swiss Lodge of Freemasons. And now this particular grandfather is rumored to be the illegitimate son of Goethe. Right, maybe you know Goethe, Faust part one and two. Um, and this is an idea Young really liked to play with throughout his entire life. You know, in conversation, people might bring it up. He said, oh, well, you know, that's nothing really, but he really did play it up. The only me uh, reason why I mention this is, you know, in, in psychology or specifically within the, the talking therapies, one thing to look at is, you know, in terms of identities, when you're given a name that belongs to someone else, right? So that particular individual might have an additional burden to live up to somebody else's name. And I think certainly that was the case with Young's, uh, Young's experience and his experience of his grandfather. Now, on Young's mother's side, most male members were clergymen, right? So I think the number was eight, actually, Protestant clergymen. Young's mother was also believed to possess psychic or clairvoyant abilities, right? So Young's love of the uncanny or his interest in the uncanny certainly stems from his mother's side. She's basically purported to be a medium, right? Someone who is able to communicate with the dead in some way, shape, or form. Young's father is described by Young as tolerant but powerless and emotionally immature. Paul Young, so Young's father, eventually lost his faith, and this was you know, really disturbing for Young. So his father, because there was no other work, he kind of persevered with his duties to provide for his family. But for Young, you know, his, his father was a hypocrite, right? So here's a man who preaches the faith, right? Tells others, you know, to, to kind of follow this particular path, and yet he can't follow it himself. And this really plays a part in his dealings with other men, and, you know, later on in his life, but it certainly shapes his approach to the psychology of religion as well, right? But I would say that, you know, usually sons are pretty harsh with their fathers, Right, and people should really ease up just a little bit because once you become a father, you, you begin to understand things a little bit more. Um, in Young's autobiography, and I use this term very loosely, uh, Memories, Dreams, Reflections, he describes his home life, uh, or sorry, his home atmosphere as oppressed with a pervasive sense of death, melancholy, and unease, with dim intimations of trouble between his parents. Right, so perhaps not the, the happiest of upbringings. Um, but very interestingly, in his 1959 interview with John Freeman um, of the BBC, when asked who he had a, a closer relationship with, he actually said, I have a closer relationship with his father, right? which is quite interesting given these, these remarks as well. Um, his father was predictable. right? He feared his mother to a certain extent, and mainly because for him, his mother represented what he would call the nighttime right, i.e. the unconscious, because of her uncanny abilities, because perhaps she was not as predictable, and there was a, a spell that she was ill and she wasn't at home either. Now this is interesting just because Young's evaluation of his parents can't be divorced from his psychology, right? He's really seeing or interpreting his parents from the perspective of personality number one and number two. Personality number one, denoting consciousness, i.e. the light of day, things that we engage with um, you know, on, on a day-to-day -day basis without really thinking much about it. His mom represented personality number two, i.e. that personality perhaps which is more historic, ancestral, 
um, an uncanny, a bit more knowing, if you will. Right. Young had one sister, but she wasn't born until 1884, so she was nine years uh, his junior. Now, Young's education and professional context, so maybe I shouldn't have jumped there. Um, he enrolled as a student at Basel University in 1895 and studies natural science and medicine, but as many of you know, his interests extend to religion, philosophy, etc. While at university, Young's father passed away. He was 21, and this was really a breakthrough period for him, right? So he became more social. He really got enmeshed, entrenched in his academic work, um, and he really became involved in this fraternity. And it's the same fraternity that his father joined, the Savingius Society. And apart from the, the social aspects and benefits of belonging to a fraternity, um, he really engaged with the academic debate. So many of the students would give presentations and then lively discussions would stem from that. And Young gave many of these. So when it comes to decide on a career path, Young decides to go into medicine and more specifically psychiatry. And he tells us that he was inspired after reading a textbook on psychiatry by a chap named Richard von Kraft Ebbing, who is best known, someone's not exactly fantastic, who is best known for um, detailing over 200 cases of what then was known as or considered uh, sexual deviancy. And what's excited Young about Kraft Ebbing's description uh, or explanation, if you will, was his description of a psychosis. Right, so let's just pause right there. Um, the difference between a psychosis and a neurosis, right? You're really kind of looking at the different patient groups that Young and Freud were working with, respectively, as well. Um, so Young ultimately was working with psychotics. Freud was working with neurotics. Now, perhaps it's a dated term, but how would you explain or understand a psychosis? How would you define it? Yes. Mm -hmm. Whereas a neurosis is someone who just Interesting. Sure, sure. Excellent answer. Anyone else want to add to that? Yes, right here. Mm -hmm. Sure. Interesting. Anyone else? One more back here. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. Fantastic. Fantastic. So both are, you know, denoting groups of mental illnesses. Okay. Now with the psychosis, it would include things like schizophrenia. At that time, it was called dementia praecox and manic depression. And this is characterized by a loss of one's capacity for reason. And, you know, back at that time, Jung described it as an actual split in the psyche, right? That there could be a fragmentary personality stemming uh, from, from the ment mental illness itself. And as our colleagues have just explained with the neurosis, also denote, uh, denoting a group of mental illnesses, but this is usually characterized by normal traits, or sorry, obsessional traits, but there's still a connection to society. A person who is neurotic hasn't necessarily lost that connection to society, whereas with a psychosis, there seems to be a complete disconnect from reality. So we all have our little quirks. Right? We're all made up of our neuroses. So if I look at this table, and I just don't like where those batteries are placed right now. Maybe I just want to place them right over here where they're nice and safe. Okay, that might be quite neurotic of me. Um, I like to push my door five times before I leave it, even though I know I've locked it. 
right? Okay, that's quite neurotic. I'm not, I'm just giving you an example, by the way. I really don't do that, right? <laughs> step on a crack, you break your mother's back, right? So if I step on a crack, let me reverse three times, and if I don't, I can turn around and walk forwards, okay? So we all have these little neurotic bits, if you will. Now, the difference is, you know, with, with the neurosis, you create a certain ritual, right? Like perhaps walking three times back before you move forward, which then allows you, if you will, to kind of live and contain that experience without being overwhelmed by it. Okay, so that's the difference between a psychosis and neurosis. What really gets Young excited at this particular point is Kraft Ebbing's description of a psychosis as diseases of the personality, right? So we'll hear Young speak about it and then we'll unpack this a bit more. Just got a clip for a few minutes. Well now, when the time came that you qualified as a doctor, what made you decide to specialize in being an alienist? Yeah, rather an interesting point. When I, I had finished my studies practically, and when I um, uh, didn't know what I really wanted to do, I had a big chance to follow one of my professors. He was called to a new position in Munich, and he wanted me as his assistant. And, and th but then, in that moment, I uh, studied for my final examination. Um, I came across the textbook, a textbook of psychiatry. Up to then, I thought nothing about it because our professor then wasn't particularly interesting. And I, read, I only read the introduction to that book where certain things were said uh, about uh, psychosis as a maladjustment of personality. That hit the nail on the head. In that moment, I saw I must become an alienist. My heart was something wild in that moment. Uh, and uh, when I told my professor I, I wouldn't follow him, I would study uh, psychiatry, he couldn't understand it. No, my, uh, my friends, uh, because in those days psychiatry was, was nothing, nothing at all. But I saw one, the one great chance to unite certain uh, uh, contrasting things in myself, namely, Besides medicine, besides natural science, I always had studied uh, history of philosophy and such subjects. Uh, it was just as if suddenly two streams were joining. And how? Right. So get out of that. Right. So from current slide. Okay. So understanding a psychosis as diseases of the personality. Now this is very interesting. Since everyone possesses different personalities, there is a highly subjective component to psychiatry, right? And really challenged the belief at that time that mental illness was caused by something organic or physical, right? So one strand of thinking actually went that, well, the reason why a person perhaps is mentally ill and leaning more towards the psychotic spectrum is that there might be something pushing on the brain somewhere. Well, no, right? By understanding it as something, i.e. character related, you're shifting it away from that. So if anything, what, what this idea does 
is allows us to try to understand those individuals. Let's just not lock them away, throw away the key, right? They can't contribute society, to society anymore. They're lost, right? So let's just kind of keep them on, on the top floor of the asylum, okay? And what Jung actually realized then, and a, you know, a large part of his time at the Grotzis was dedicated to this, was trying to understand the logic of the unconscious, if you will, right? When people were stopping him in the hallways and saying, look out the sun, right? The, 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 there's a phallus there, and, and that's the cause of the wind. Now, that's a problematic case in and of itself. We won't get into that right now. But those everyday experiences, he was actually really trying to come to grips to understanding them. There is a logic here, right? The fault actually lies with Jung and the psychiatrist. We can't understand this, right? But if I'm to help these, these people, I need to understand that language. And if it's the case that these hallucinations are coming across in religious symbols, mythology, etc., then the burden and onus is on me to go delve into mythology and religious studies, etc., in order to access this. Right? So essentially, right, psychotics are not lost causes. Right? We can engage with them, we can relate to them, we can speak to them, and it really, again, opens up that possibility of understanding, which was different from what Freud was doing. Right? Essentially, that relationship started because Jung was extending Freud's ideas into a realm that he himself was not practicing in, right? i.e. with psychotic patients rather than neurotic patients. Okay, fantastic. Any questions so far? Okay, let us continue then. Now, at the time, the way to become a psychiatrist was to become a member of staff at a university mental hospital as an assistant, which basically means as a resident, right? He was living there. Um, and to work one's way up through the ranks. Young also wanted to leave Basel. He did not want to be identified with both sides of his family, so he applied and received a position at the prestigious Bergotzli Psychiatric Hospital in Zurich. Sorry, and there's a picture I took of the Bergotzli uh, last year. Okay, so at the Bergotzli mental, uh, mental Hospital, what was he doing? He completes his dissert uh, dissertation, which was awarded by the University of Zurich. And it's on the topic of dissociation in a mediumistic girl. All right? Anyone want to take a stab at how you would define dissociation? Okay, fantastic. Anyone else? Okay, excellent. So that's basically it, right? It's a French school of thought, pioneered by many, but Pierre Genet is usually the name tied, if you will, to uh, you know, the, the French school of dissociationism. And basically, with the mediumistic girl, as we said, this is an individual who, in a trance state, can manifest or become the mouthpiece of different personalities, which they maintain no knowledge of after coming out of the trance state. Right? And this, perhaps, was, you know, was really one of the, the evidence people would use for the existence of the unconscious. Right? Same with hypnosis as well. Right? You're made to do certain things, and once you're out of that trance state, you can't recall what you did under that hypnotic state. Now, what was Jung's method for this dissertation? He attends and records the seances of a young medium, SW, right? And it turns out the name of this individual is Helene Prizework, right? So it's his cousin from his mother's side. So if you go to any ethics committee now at the university, you will not get ethical approval, I promise you. Right? But at that time, he was allowed to, to continue with this. Now, Jung made detailed observations over two years, 
and it becomes uh, the basis for his doctoral dissertation on the psychology and pathology of so-called occult phenomena. Now, it's a complex thesis. We're not here to talk about the thesis, but there are main, two main ideas or observations I'd like to extract because I think they're really pertinent for some of the concepts we're going to discuss later on uh, in, in this talk. So one, Young was really impressed by how real SW's spirit seemed to her, right? So that as if they were independent personalities, okay? It's very interesting. Number two, there was a particular personality that was named Yvenne, right? And this personality was more dignified and it was known as SW's control spirit. In this trance state, Yvenne was able to communicate in perfect High German, which was very different from SW's native Basel dialect. Anyone speak German here? Fantastic. So it is really different, isn't it? Okay, interesting, fantastic. Now, Jung concludes that Yvenne is SW's mature adult personality developing in her unconscious. The seances provided the means through which this development could proceed. These two main ideas or observations anticipate Young's formulation of one, autonomous complexes, which we will speak about in one second, which can act as if they were independent personalities possessing the individual. Okay, number two, i.e. The, the second observation, foreshadows Young's theory of individuation and his notion of the archetypal self. Okay? So, we're getting to complexes, don't worry. We're getting to, the, to, to Young's model of the psyche. But some more work that he did at the Bergoltzli word association tests, okay? Now, he is known for this, yes, but there was another chap who was writing with him. His name was Franz Ricklin, um, and he's usually forgotten, right? He's usually a bit of a footnote. But basically, Franz Ricklin was brought in because Jung was so bored with doing the scientific aspects of the work, and they just got Ricklin to do it, okay? So, anyone know a bit about word association tests? Yeah. Okay, tell me about word association tests. Anything you know? Method, what it's looking for? Friends. What's that? Uh, there's a Friends episode where they mm -hmm. play the game and they're like, if I say blue, you say mm -hmm. whatever, if I say Monica, you say, I think she, he named, I think Ross named his sister when he was talking. I don't know. It was not funny and it revealed. Sure. So sure. Fantastic. Yes, sir. Well, yeah, well done. You said that better than me. Do you want to come up here and get mic'd up? All right, fantastic. Anyone else want to add to that? Well done. Anyone else? Okay, so that's basically it. It's an experimental method for the identification of personal complexes by the investigation of associations or chance psychological linkages. Now, Jung did not invent the test. Right? But many would argue or could argue that he perfected it in certain ways. He actually attributes uh, word, association, word association tests to Wilhelm Wundt. But if you want to go back further, you can actually go back to Francis Galton, right? the English Victorian scholar and polymath. Now, as we said, the main purpose is the detection and analysis of complexes. In theory, psychological symptoms could be alleviated if the doctor could help the individual overcome his or her complexes, which were just beneath the surface. And 
you know, like the talking therapies, there's supposed to be a cathartic effect in noting um, and to a certain extent in reliving, reliving and working through the emotions attached, if you will, to that trigger word. Right, so how do we conduct the test? Well, we're giving it away, okay? We have 100 stimulus words. Now, don't ask Young how he comes up with these words, right? This is a little rhetorical trick in his writing. He says, trust me, I'm a doctor, right? <laughs> I've done years and years of investigation. These are the 100 words. But actually, it's quite fluid, right? Because if you look to some of the other tests, these 100 words change as well, okay? So it's not completely written in stone. And um, the current president of the C.G. Young Institute in Zurich, she's also come up with a separate list. Her name is Verena Kast, um, although I can't recall which book she actually mentions that in, but you, you can do some digging on that one. Now, as our colleague said, what are the instructions here? Okay, so the person conducting the test reads through the 100 words. You are asked to respond to the word. Okay, so I say head, you respond. Don't respond, actually. Um, <laughs> now, what are we noting here? Okay, we're definitely noting the time it took to respond to the word, and we'll come back, come back to that later. We're also then noting the association. Okay, everyone good so far? So then we go to the second round. Okay, so we're gonna go through the test again. This time, the instruction is the same, although the added thing is that try to repeat the same association you did the first time around. Okay, so you go through that list again. Fantastic, so you've done the list now. What are we looking for? So as our colleague said, first and foremost, you're looking at when the stimulus word does not match, okay? So for instance, if we go back here, um, what's it, 55, right, child. First time around, you say love, okay? Second time, second time around, you say kill, ouch. Right? So as the doctor, you might want to just slightly put a little asterisk beside that word. There might be some energy attached to that. Just keep that one in mind. Fantastic. Um, what else are you looking for? The prolongation of the reaction time. Now, Jung, you know, he, he makes some problematic generalizations. He said the kind of typical uh, educated person should respond within 7.5 seconds. Now that puts pressure on yourself. Oh my God, I think I'm really relatively intelligent. I should respond within seven. Um, but obviously he did leave you know, scope for individual subjectivity, etc. So what he did was, so you note the time of each and every word, and this is really you know, a lot of work that you're doing. And then he finds an average time for that particular individual. Okay, so let's say hypothetically that the time for this particular individual responding is 9.5 seconds. Let me just erase this here. 9.5 seconds, right? Anything over 9.5 seconds is something you also want to pay attention to, right? So we'll draw a little star beside that as well. Why, right? So even if you were able to respond with the same association, so let's go back to number 55, child, right? And we say the first time you said love. That happened within seven seconds. Next time around, you also say love, right? But it takes you a whopping 15 seconds to respond, right? Now, potentially, right, or, you know, one of the hypo hypotheses is, is that you spent so much time trying to repeat the word that, in fact, there was another word bubbling away, 
right? There's something else you actually wanted to say. But in spending so much energy in trying to suppress that word, you've obviously come up with the other word, but guess what? You've already potentially betrayed the energy or emotion attached to that word through the length of time itself. Okay, now it's a bit more complicated, that, uh, complicated than that, but essentially that's what he's looking for. Fantastic. Okay, anything else? Anything else you might be looking for? It's a lot of mainstream stuff, yes? You said um, there might be some anger that you mm-hmm. Yeah. Energy in, in his sense of libido, his understanding of libido, right? As this kind of general life energy over and above, let's say, or in contrast to Freud's understanding of libido, which is usually sexual in nature, right? But certainly there, there's, there's something tied up, right? Some kind of emotional valence attached to the word itself, okay? Flinches, right? This is all kind of pop psychology stuff. Someone does this, the tell in poker, right? So anyone who shows signs of a pattern, right, or any kind of bodily movement on certain words, you should note that one as well. As our colleague mentioned over there, it's a galvanometric test, which means he was testing for any spikes in electrical conductivity through the skin, right? So the hypothesis is, is that once you come, right, to some tense emotional words, the energy should spike, right? And then that's something you take note of. And as our colleague also said, Um, he tried to test the breathing. He tried to make an association or a link between the word and how it affects your breathing. So either the word comes up and you go, (gasps) right? There could be a link there. Or (laughs) you start panting, right? But in, you know, quite a very scientific way, in a very empirical way, he didn't have conclusive evidence for that. So he actually dropped that, right? So he started looking into it, but he didn't go much further with that. Anything else? So not really responding to the word. Yes or no answers are fantastic, right? That's usually something to to pay note of, uh, or take note of, sorry. Now, very interestingly, if you respond in a different language, right? He has this one really telling example. So there's um, a really well-known professor who's very skeptical of Jung's association tests and the experiments that he's doing. Young invites him, so come on, come on down, right? Let's do one. Um, and after a while, even before he finishes the first round of 100 words, he says, stop. Okay, I don't want to do this anymore. Just tell me what you know. Um, now, the test itself was conducted in German, right? For one particular word, the, the, the professor answered in French, right? Now, before I tell you what it was, just some context, I mean, Really, it might not be that odd, because in Switzerland, what are the three main languages? French, exactly, right? So it might not be that odd in that particular context. But in this particular case, Young pays quite a bit of attention to it. So the test is being conducted in German. We get to a term like the one voyage, right, which is up here. And at that point, the professor answers in French, and he says l'amour, right? So he gets all fed up, flustered. Tell me what you know. And Young says, well, very clearly, you're at an advanced age now. You're looking back to your youth. It's very clear that you had a love affair in France, and now you're thinking about her. And he hit the nail on the head like that. Right? How interesting. Now, 
it really kind of comes to, if you will, the, the more intuitive aspects of the test, but we'll say a few things about that in a second, right? So the complex, the underlying feeling tone, if you will, betrays itself through the trigger word, which carry with them emotional connotations. Now, from those stimulus words, Jung is able to build a narrative, right? And this takes a large amount of imagination and intuition. There's actually someone who's created a software program to do all the nitty-gritty of the, the timing, right, for you, which is very interesting. He's actually come up with a lot of resistance to the, the analysts or from the analysts, and I can see where um, that, that issue is actually coming from. But what you can't really do is, like, you know, you can extract all the data, but it's the interpretation that counts. And there was something uncanny and intuitive in the way that Jung was able to weave those narratives. So if you look to his Tavistock lectures, right, the lectures he gave in London in 1935, he, um, he was able to, to say, based on five words, that uh, a young man from a very respectable family goes off on a gap year, right? And during that gap year, he gets drunk, he stabs someone, right? He spends time in jail and becomes basically the black sheep of the family, right? Based on five words, right? So again, you can see there's some highly intuitive capacity that Jung's working with when he's engaging with these particular words. Right, now, Jung speculates that the test could be used in crime detection as well as in therapy, right? So in a true kind of intuitive way, he's saying, well, yeah, you could use that in crime detection, but then he just drops it, right? And you could see the similarities with the lie detector test to a certain extent. Um, but he drops it and he abandons it, for beyond the complexes is a link to a more foundational level of, of, of the psyche, the archetypes of the collective unconscious. Okay? We'll pause there for one second, but a bit of a footnote. Does this word association test remind you of any other popular test? Ah, fantastic. Anyone know the link? Well, a more historical link, Rorschach was there at the Bergolz at the same time as Jung, right? The Rorschach inkblot test comes after Jung, right? So I think there was one particular author who published a book through SUNY Press looking at the connection between uh, Jung and Rorschach, but I just find it very interesting that, the, you know, they're potentially looking for very similar things, whether they met, whether, you know, they had coffee together, attended each other's seminars, etc. I don't know the, the details of that, but they did share a mentor in Eugene Bloiler, who was the person running the Burgotsli at the time, right? So very interesting point of connection, potentially, to make. Fantastic. Any questions so far? Questions, concerns? Everyone okay? Still awake? I know it's after lunch. Everyone gets tired. Okay. Take a look at your handout. For those of you who have a handout. Everyone got your handout? Yes. Yes, yes. So we can discuss that later on, but certainly in Jung, um, when we look at the idea of, of the archetype as inherited, right, there, there's certainly something there we could discuss a bit further. But once we get to that, maybe we'll unpack that a bit more. Okay? Right. This is the psyche. The psyche does not look like this. Okay? This is just a, a representation, a graphic representation um, of the connection of consciousness and the unconscious, right? So the model serves as a heuristic, a heuristic tool, a visualization of the relationship between the conscious and the unconscious. Now, the main thing to take note of here, 
is that for Jung, the psyche is comprised of three distinct levels. Okay, consciousness, the personal unconscious, and the collective unconscious. So let's go through each one. When we speak of consciousness, we are speaking about mainly the ego, right? If you look to the diagram, the ego is at the center of consciousness. Okay, for Jung, this is the center of consciousness, the function of which is to regulate the personality, right? It is related to issues of personal identity, cognition, and reality testing, right? It allows you to say something is real and that you actually exist, right? So how do we know that we exist? A quick thought experiment, I exist because I'm different from you. There's some entity, some conglomeration that makes me specifically me. But most importantly, consciousness mediates an engagement with the unconscious, right? Um, this is a central theme. It's key to all the talking therapies, but at the same time, it's so important to emphasize because when people begin to think of Jung, they think immediately of the collective unconscious, the archetypes, mythology, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a proclivity to jump to that extreme end without noting that actually consciousness itself played such an integral part to Jung's psychology, especially in the individuation process. Okay, so just keep that in mind. Now, Jung's psychology of consciousness also entails his theory of psychological types, for which he's probably best known, right? But we won't get too much into that. But the two main attitudes, introversion and extroversion, which then orients the four main functions. Let's see, uh, thinking, feeling, intuition, sensation, right? And as many of you know, the very popular Meyer Briggs type indicator is based on Jung's original eight-type model. Okay, now when Jung speaks of the unconscious, we really begin to see the distinctive features of analytical psychology that make it different from Freud's psychological model, right? And Jung divides the unconscious into two parts, the personal unconscious and the collective unconscious, right? Now, Jung would say the personal unconscious is as far as Freud went, right, in his model. And you have to take that with a pinch of salt, right? They had a very acrimonious break in their relationship. And in many ways in his writing, um, Jung is kind of using Freud as a straw man, right? So think about the implications of this, right? I go to the level of the collective unconscious. Freud only goes to the personal unconscious, i.e. I go one layer deeper, right? I do one bit more than what Freud is actually doing. But when Jung is speaking about the personal unconscious, it is not different from what Freud is saying. Right? It is made up of repressed and suppressed material, memories that are too painful to hold in consciousness, so these are purposely pushed down and forgotten. Right? So, I mean, you know, as an individual, we can't hold on to everything that happens in our life. And sometimes things are very painful that it's actually disrupting or interrupting our everyday living, right? the way we engage with the world. So what do we do? We try to forget it. We push it down. Right? But it all has to go somewhere. And Jung is saying it goes into, if you will, the psychic sphere called the personal unconscious. Now, when we push these emotions down, they tend to attract to one another and form clusters around a certain idea or topic. Okay? And these clusters are called complexes. So let's try to unpack this a little bit. Um, complexes are real. Okay? Jung would say that, you know, with a, a complex, usually, but not always, it's tied to some trauma that you've experienced. Not always, right? Because he talks about positive complexes as well. 
but usually in terms of the negative complexes, it's tied to some trauma. It's usually tied to some real physical relationship that we have with others. Okay? And it's an emotional reaction to that actual real experience. All right? Everyone okay so far? So, let's try to unpack. What does he mean by emotions clustering around a main theme or topic? So, let's choose something different. When I usually do this, I usually go mother and father, right? Because that's the easy thing to do, right? But let's try something different, right? Let's go brother or sister, right? Because within psychoanalysis itself, there's, there's a real shift, actually. Because usually we're looking at that hierarchical, hierarchical relationship, right? I.e. the horizontal relationship, how one is affected by the horizontal relationship. Very few people actually look at, right, the, the, the vertical. Uh, sorry, other way around. Thank you very much, right? Looking at the, the relationship with siblings. Let's just put it frankly, that's what I'm talking about, okay? But with Alfred Adler, right? Poor Alfred Adler. No one really speaks much about Alfred Adler in individual psychology. He actually spoke a lot about sibling relationships. And there's only really a turn now in psychoanalysis um, where they're focusing more on the influence of siblings. Um, right, brother or sister? Someone yell it out. You said first, so I'm going to say sister. Okay, I have a sister. I was inclined to sister anyways. You read my mind. Okay, now, give me some associations with sister. What are your associations with sister? Brother. Brother? Okay, interesting. Why not? What else? Female. Okay, female. Okay. Anyone else? Connection. Connection. What else? Sorry, one at a time, yeah? Pain in the neck, okay, interesting. Anyone else? Older, friend. Opposite. Interesting, opposite. Fantastic. Competitor, very interesting. Sexy, fantastic. What else? A few more. Thick, okay. <laughs> easy, easy. <laughs> We're in a safe space. Yes. Twin. Twin. Hey, very interesting. That's a very special particular relationship, actually. Um, that's a very interesting bit. There's someone in our department who just did a, a PhD on, on twins and losing a twin, actually. Very traumatic. Um, one more. Love. Okay, one more. There's one here, too. Parent. Oh, fantastic. Surrogates. Okay, interesting. Now, obviously, different people responded, okay? It's not really a, a snapshot of one particular psyche, but it's a heuristic purpose. We're trying to explain what Jung was talking about in this kind of convoluted definition of a, of a complex. So basically, these emotions become connected with the larger experience of sister. And as you can see, it can be quite ambivalent, right? As Freud would say, there is a, potentially a love-hate relationship. Now, what tends to happen in the psyche then, in the personal unconscious, is that these emotions or connotations begin to weave together, to connect, if you will, in an intricate web that is all tied together around this nucleus of sister. So it becomes a system in and of itself, right? Its own independent system to a certain extent. Now, what happens when a complex is touched upon or activated, right? When someone says, oh, you've really touched on the complex, 
usually what happens is there's a huge emotional outburst. You know that you've touched a raw nerve, much like in the word association. You've touched the trigger word. So let's take an example here. Okay, pain in the neck. That's the best one. That's the easiest one. Okay, so we're a few years on now. You meet someone in the real world, right? Let's say in the workplace, maybe reminds you to, of your sister a little bit, but if anything, they're really beginning to trigger this, okay? They're really being the pain in the neck. Now, what happens is perhaps this one day they just really bother you and there's an absolute explosion. You absolutely have a go at this person, right? And it could be potentially very uncharacteristic of you, but that emotional outburst is one fantastic way of noting that something very fragile has been touched, something that touches you very deeply has been activated, right? Now, two things, why? It's not just that the person was the pain in the neck. What's being mobilized is not this emotion or feeling or connotation, but the whole complex system itself. Why? Because everything has tied together, right? So that burst of energy that actually comes out in the form of yelling back, et cetera, et cetera, is not just this being touched, but the entire system, all the emotions that have been connected to it around this theme of sister, okay? That's one thing. The second reason a complex is so potentially powerful, and as we were trying to say earlier, is that the complex is history, right? It is your personal history. If anything, if that's being touched, the moment you felt your sister was a pain in the neck, it's brought you back to that very experience, right? So you could be 30 years on, highly successful, nothing really bothers you. But if someone touches you right here, my goodness, it, you're that 13-year-old kid again, or 12-year-old kid, or 8-year-old kid, whatever it is. Okay, that is the force of the complex. And that's what Young meant by the autonomous complex. It's as if something possessed you, right? You are completely outside of yourself. You're not you anymore. What's happened? Well, this. Everything's been activated and constellated. Right? So that's what he meant by a complex potentially possessing an individual as if it was separate from someone else. And you can see now, back in his doctoral dissertation, that's what he was talking about, right? This idea of something beyond oneself, right? So we've talked about that. Okay, let's make sure we've got everything here. Yeah, does that explain this idea of a complex? Okay, fantastic, right? Um, Ultimately, uh, complexes are connected to a more universal and an inherited core, i.e. the archetypes. And you can see on the diagram, right, that the C is actually connected to the A, right? So there's a, a connection between the complex and the archetype. Hopefully, we'll unpack that as well. Another way to explain uh, a complex, and um, someone bring me back to this if I don't come back to it. Another way to understand the complex is, is the flesh of the archetype. Right? You can understand the complex as the flesh of the archetype. Okay? And hopefully we'll, we'll come back to that. Yeah, 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 sure. Can someone share with our colleague over here as well if someone close has one to give Right. Sorry about that. Yeah. Right. So there it is. Okay? We've got one in the spirit of sharing. Fantastic. Okay. Right. Excellent. So, for now, and again, you know, yes? I've got a question. 
Yes? Uh, you're talking about the as, as if the autonomous mm -hmm. complexes mm -hmm. are completely separate from the archetypal energy, but complexes mm -hmm. can also be related to archetypal yeah, that's what I'm yeah, getting to, because the, the complex is related to the archetype. So I'll try to unpack this as, as we go along as well. So the, the autonomous energy that mm -hmm. the complex that gets triggered mm -hmm. at some given time mm -hmm. can be triggered by an archetypal association. Um, archetypal, yes, but there are different ways to, the, to know the archetypal. We can never know the archetypal. Mm -hmm. We know the archetype through the archetypal image or the complex, right? The actual real physical relationship you know, the, the way we engage with the archetypal energy, right? So anyways, I'll try to unpack that. I mean, to show you how important the idea of the complex was to Jung, there was a time that he toyed with calling his psychology not analytical psychology, but complex psychology, right? He had actually two different names going concurrently. Analytical psychology was supposed to speak specifically to therapeutic technique, right? Complex psychology was supposed to point to the application if you will, of, of analytical psychology. So things like applied psychoanalysis, trying to understand cultural phenomena, et cetera. That really was Jung's larger aim, to, to produce, if you will, or to present this meta-psychology. And he actually wanted to call it complex psychology, right? So yeah, he puts quite a bit of weight on this idea of a complex. Okay, but for now, and again, just for heuristic purposes, the personal unconscious is populated by complexes. The collective unconscious is populated by archetypes. But again, this is very simplistic. As our colleague said, it, it's blurred. Okay? It's not such a, a clear demarcation and connection between one, or, one and the other. But the main thing to take away as well is that to understand the psyche means understanding not just what's on the surface, i.e. consciousness, but also the unconscious, i.e. things that we're not aware of and we should actually you know, proactively try to become more aware of. Okay. Fantastic. So the collective unconscious, you can't define the collective unconscious without defining the archetypes and vice versa, right? They're intricately tied together. So here is a definition of the collective unconscious. Um, the collective general and universal part of the unconscious mind derived through eons of repetition of human cultural imagery and experiences that despite differences in detail remain typically human with recognizable commonalities and meanings. And I think Niall's gonna send all the slides to you as well, so, so if you just wanna take pictures or, or do it later, that's okay as well. Now, how do we define archetypes? A few ways, okay? Two main ways I'm gonna focus on here today. Archetypes are typical patterns of interaction and relationship, and also experiences that are shared and inherited by all individuals, irrespective of cultural differences, right? So one way to understand the archetype is to ask yourself, what makes our life typically human? Anyone? What makes the life typically human? What makes the life that we lead completely different from a bee's life? Hmm? Emotions, okay, anything else? Forward and backward? Language. Language, fantastic. It's more Lacanian, but it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, anyone else? Yes, colleague at the back here. Okay. Okay, fantastic. So, I mean, one way Young looks at it is that, you know, there are typical life events that we enshrine in ritual, that we commemorate, right? So we build a ritual around it to say, actually, this is a significant step in our human experience, 
right? And many cultures do it different ways. Particularly for me, because I'm speaking from my own subjectivity, I was raised as a Roman Catholic, right? Anyone else raised as a Roman Catholic? Okay, all right. Fantastic, we can talk about that later. Um, but there's a frame, there's a frame, right? The seven sacraments. So I'm testing myself here because I've written over there, but I haven't brought my sheet with me. Baptism. Um, no, it's Eucharist first. No, confession. It's confession. Confession, communion, confirmation, marriage, if one chooses to go down that route, holy orders, and then death. Is that seven? Yeah. Woo! One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. All right, well done, me. <laughs> I can be less guilty about myself now. Fantastic. So you, you have the seven sacra sacraments, okay? Now, what Young would say is that if you look to every culture, right, most, almost every culture will have a myth or story about birth, right, to frame that experience. Most cultures will have a myth or story about death. Most cultures will have a myth or a story about some form of initiation or coming of age. And then we enshrine this in ritual as well. Now this is very specific, uh, specific to a Roman Catholic upbringing, but if we look to Judaism and Jewish culture, the coming of age rituals, bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, fantastic. Okay, Filipino culture, the debut, right? Anyone else, right? So basically what Young is saying is that there are typical universal experiences, right? Things that we enshrine, things that we commemorate to a certain extent. And that is one way to define the archetypal. Okay, now, a bit more complex. Sometimes it's easiest to describe these relationships in a personified form, right? So it was Jung's attempt to concretize and define not only just an experience, but an internal psychological dialogue or relationship we have with an internal aspect, if you will, which then ultimately gets projected outwards in a real uh, lived relationship. And we're really speaking about Jung's Red Book period here. Okay, anyone familiar with his Red Book period? Fantastic, excellent. Really delving into the unconscious basically happens after his break with Freud as well, right? That, that's actually quite telling. But he begins to hear a voice. Right? And he really wants to understand this voice. Now, it, it's, it's elusive. It's protean. Right? He can't come to grips with it. Every time the voice is there, he loses it. So in order for him to begin to know and communicate and dialogue with that voice, he concretizes it. He gives it a name. Right? And yes, that's limiting to a certain extent, but it was the first step to try to understand that. And that's where we get the idea of the contrasexual opposite, the anima and the animus. So this is then a separate rubric, if you will. When he's referring to archetypes, Jung is referring to very specific personified archetypes. But it's not as if they were physical entities, right? It's just a way, again, to begin naming something and to understand it. So that's how we get the persona, the shadow, the anima, the animus, the great mother, the wise old man, right? And I'm just showing my age here, but one way to, to try to understand this idea, anyone remember a sitcom called Herman's Head? Or I think it was called Inside Herman's Head. Anyone? Oh, okay, one person, thank goodness. <laughs> but you, it, for that for one person who knows, it was this gentleman um, whose decisions, if you will, were affected by different parts 
right, of, of these kind of physical personalities. I mean, think of Inside Out, right, the movie Inside Out. What's that? Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. So again, it, it begins to, to, you know, to allow you to access this idea of a personified archetype. Okay. Now, how does Jung continue to define an archetype? Archetypes in and of themselves are unknowable. We only know them through their manifestation in culture as archetypal images and complexes. Okay. So let's begin to unpack that a little bit. I mean, anyone who studies philosophy, you can see the resonance here, the influence of Kant, Schopenhauer. I mean, you can think of Plato as well, going back to the Republic, the analogy of the cave, right? But what is he meaning here? So let's kind of tackle this in a diagram. And you can tell, you know, I, I didn't pass art class, um, but it's fun to draw diagrams. So when my, one of my Jungian mentors was trying to explain to me the connection between the actual analytic setting, the therapeutic relationship, the complex, the archetypal image, and the archetype. She drew this, okay? And I will draw it for you now. Okay. I've actually messed up this pen. I actually need to get another pen. <laughs> um, right, let's see if these work. Okay. So, let's just say for argument's sake, I'm in analysis, okay? And if we're looking for more, uh, more kind of classical understanding of the transference countertransference, let's say that my analyst is a female, okay? Again, it, it's not like this really, you know, but I'm just kind of trying to make it simple. So you have the transference and the countertransference, okay? Now, this is a safe container or environment where one can regress Right? To go back to those moments of trauma, potentially, to relive it, to act out in safety. Right? So that you can kind of process it, come to terms with it, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what happens in the transfer and countertransference? transfer? Let's say my analyst um, is roughly the same age as my mother. Right? Now, technically, then, she might be the suitable hook or perfect candidate onto which I can project certain material to live it out, right? to re-experience it. So in essence then, right, behind my analytic relationship, I'm working through my complexes with my, my own mother complexes, put it that way, right? Now let's say during the analytic process I begin to dream, right? And one key image keeps cropping up, right? And let's say it's Athena, right? Now in the Greek pantheon, what does she represent? Okay, wisdom, right, war as well, okay? So maybe some of the, the themes that are becoming constellated or the things that need to be worked through have to do with themes of wisdom and perhaps war to a certain extent, okay? And again, these are images that are coming out in my dreams to a certain extent, right? Now, Jung would call that the archetypal image, right? Behind the archetypal image is this, right? It's the archetype. Now what Jung was saying is that we can't ever know the archetype in its full gamut, okay? Because it contains a skeletal structure of all those, let's say, experiences tied to mother, okay? What we inherit actually 
is just the capacity to have those different experiences. It doesn't mean that we're going to experience every single thing, right? So if anything, Athena might only touch one aspect of the feminine, i.e. that aspect that I'm dealing with specifically, right? The way that that energy is being conveyed to me or how I'm living it out is through the complex itself, the actual real world experience. Right? That's what we mean when the complex can be understood as the flesh of the archetype. It gives us one way to access that understanding of the archetypal, but only a small aspect of it. Right? So let's draw some other diagrams, try to, to make this more palatable. What is actually being inherited here? Okay. So when we did that diagram of, of sister, Right? We, we used Freud's term ambivalence because there's a lot of positive and negative involved. Okay? We'll call this line sister. We'll have this as the positive, negative. Now, some of us had very positive experiences. Right? Some of us potentially had very problematic or neg negative experiences. And then there's every gradient in between. Right? We could have what Winnicott described as the good enough relationship. Okay, but there are so many different ways we can experience that sibling relationship, right? That is the archetype, the full gamut of it. There's going to be a lot of variance and difference. What Jung is saying is that we don't inherit the actual experience. We only inherit the capacity to have those experiences, right? That we can have the full gamut, not to say that we actually have the full gamut. So think of it another way. The archetype is like a jug. Right? Quote that. The archetype is like a jug. Um, let's call this sister. Okay, this is the container, if you will. Now, the experience could be like that. Right? Not full enough. The experience could be like that, completely overflowing, right? And perhaps overbearing to a certain extent. Or it could be right in the middle, right? What Winnicott would say is the good enough relationship. What we're inheriting then again, is the capacity to contain or hold those experiences, not what we actually put in, right? That is the personal experience, also the cultural experience as well, right? So we only inherit the skeletal structure, the capacity to have these different experiences. Okay, right. So the archetypal image gives us a momentary glimpse of one aspect of the archetype, i.e. we cannot know it fully. Right. Now, moving on to the self and individuation. Everyone okay? Yep. All right. Fantastic. Bear with me. Just a little more. Sorry about that. You can read that while I have a sip of water. Another way, if you will, to, to understand the archetype. Okay. And again, you'll have all these slides as well. Right, go back to the diagram. For those of you who have a diagram, right, or you can just refer up here. At the center of the collective unconscious, and indeed the center of the entire psyche, is the archetype of the self. Okay, it plays a central role in an individual's development. The self is both the end goal of and what drives the individuation process. How do we define individuation? Anyone knows? Well, I've just put it up. That, that defeats the purpose, doesn't it? I should really think this through before I press the button. Um, it's a process of personality development, 
and potentially the enlargement of the personality through greater self-reflection and awareness, right? And as we said, a hallmark of all the talking therapies, it's a continual process of making that which is unconscious, conscious, right? Now, what I would emphasize here is that I'm not a clinician, okay? I'm just an academic. So there really is um, potentially a point of contention between a more academic understanding of a certain term or concept and really kind of feeling the experience itself and really understanding, right? So it's one thing to know, let's say, that, you know what, I've got a mother complex and I can see it happening. It's another thing to know in that moment when it's absolutely triggered, right? We talk about the, the, the annoying potential colleague who kind of goes back to that experience of sister. What was it again that you said? Pain in the neck, okay, there we go, right? To be able to stop yourself in the moment, because that complex is very destructive, right? Let's say that was your boss, and man, you let go. You know what, you're not gonna have a job, right? That's potentially not conducive to you earning a living, to, to your development, etc. So there's a difference between an intellectual understanding and seeing the complex and seeing it in that very moment and stopping yourself and asking yourself, hold on a second, what's being activated here, right? Is this the right moment to actually express these emotions? Because aggression, anger, it's all natural, right? But is this the most decorous time to let this come through, right? Am I really upset at this particular person or is there some larger pattern in my life that's being galvanized in this moment? Right? And poor individual here is just going to, to receive it. Okay? So it's very different from actually understanding something intellectually and really trying to integrate it and enlarge the personality. Can you stop yourself from that moment? And it takes a lot of work. You know, not many people are able to do that. Now, going back to individuation, at the more romantic scale, romanticism, right? kind of late romantic, Jung has been accused or labeled, if you will, as being a late romantic, Although there are many you know, aspects of this thinking that you could say reflect enlightenment thinking as well. Um, individuation is the realization of one's fullest potential, right? Becoming who you were born to be. Jung believed that the greatest version of you is already inside of you. Okay, it's inborn, it's intrinsic, right? The self is the archetypal image or representation of that innate potential, right? So if you go back to the, the, the doctoral dissertation, this is what he meant by, or sorry, what he characterized as Yven, right? The control spirit, right? What she had the potential to be in the future. So for Young, the task of your life is to realize that potential, right? To heed the call and to embrace it and to not resist it. But this can be very difficult because sometimes it means making a choice that isn't necessarily the most logical choice, right? Or isn't the choice that, want, uh, sorry, it's not the choice that would chime with certain expectations that might be upon you. So for Young, there really is a sense of vocation, right? A calling, if you will, to the individuation process. You don't choose it, it chooses you. In fact, neurosis may stem from evading vocation, right? And the kind of penultimate example of this is, anyone? One that I'm caught up in right now? Another Jungian contribution to our understanding of ourselves? The midlife crisis, uh, there you go, the midlife crisis, right? The, the liminal point, Victor Turner's term, liminality, the liminal point between the first half of life and the second half of life, okay? So in the first half of life, what is the main aim? You build a career, you build a, a basis, you potentially build a family, you build stability, 
you buy that house, you tie into the mortgage. I'm not happy, I gotta sell my house, right? I'm gonna tie myself into another five-year mortgage. Don't even get me going right now, okay? That's all first half of life stuff, okay? Now, the transition point then is the second half of life where we realize, you know, it's really kind of the galvanizing of the existential concerns. I'm not gonna live forever, actually. Is this really all that important? What do I really want to do? Is there a higher meaning in life? That which is different from what I'm doing right now. And it's that gap, right, between the ideal and the real, right? That gap between what that image of the self might be and what you're actually doing. That's what causes that tension in the midlife crisis, right? Am I really fulfilling my truest potential, right? So it's a risky move. You know, am I going to give up that 80K that I'm earning every year? And by the way, I'm not earning 80K every year. <laughs> But some people might say, am I going to give up that security and go with my true calling? Right? I always wanted to sculpt. I wanted to open up my own independent shop, be self-employed, and sculpt. Right? And potentially, you can make a lot, a lot of people happy that way. You can make yourself happy for a start. But again, it's not rational. You, choose, you, know, you talk to anyone, they say, don't do it. Absolutely stupid. Right? But individuation inv involves a choice that may not be the most rational and logical point, uh, logical choice at points in your life, right? Now, Jung would say that a symptom will usually arise, right? Because essentially the unconscious is being ignored. And as we said, there's a disproportionate gap between the ideal and the real. Now for Jung, the symptom is not entirely negative. And again, this is very uh, you know, very Jungian contribution to, to think about the human personality. It's an invitation, right? It's a potential invitation to heal yourself, right? To heed the call, right? To do something different, to better yourself in some way, shape, or form. Now, if these symptoms start coming, and they're coming in dream images as well, and you keep ignoring it, ignoring it, ignoring, ignoring it, Jung would say, well, then shame on you. Shame on you, right? Because not only have you betrayed yourself, and your own nature, you have also robbed society of the greater contribution you could make, right? Now again, that's an ideal, right? Because we know that Jung actually advised several people to, to maintain the status quo, right? So, especially in his relationship with Victor White, but if you're interested, that, that, that's a talk for another time. So, you know, when we think about individuation, not many people emphasize this, but it's really about relationship with society, right? Individuation is not individualism, right? Individualism concerns indulging in our own personal quirks and making excuses that allow us to justify questionable social behavior, right? So they frame it as individuation. You know, I've pushed someone, don't, don't talk to me, I'm on, I'm on the path of individuation. I can't be bothered with this right now, right? Well, well, no, right? It's not about alienating yourself from the world. There are moments of introspection, right? But that's not the ultimate aim. The ultimate aim is a greater connection with society. Individuation is about cultivating the collective aspects of oneself. Individuation does not isolate you from the world, but facilitates greater collectivity. It brings the world to oneself. Now there's this term, term here. I really should kind of not put names here. It kind of takes away the punchline. But this idea of withdrawal and return, okay? It sounds like something from Joseph Campbell to a certain extent. It's not, actually. This is the historian Arnold J. Toynbee. Anyone know Arnold J. Toynbee? Right, I've done some work on Toynbee. Very interesting historian, eminent historian in many ways. 
wrote this massive study called the study of history. The first half was more uh, embraced and, and you know, reviewed favorably than the second half. And basically, I've argued it's because he used Jung so blatantly right, in his historical work. He was a card-carrying Jungian, no doubt about it. But he actually opted for a Freudian analysis because he thought it was actually more effective. Right? So his analyst was actually Dr. Sylvia Payne of the Institute of Psychoanalysis. Anyone know Dr. Sylvia Payne? Very famous, very important figure in mediating the Freud-Klein Wars, anyone who's kind of interested um, in the history of psychoanalysis. What's the, the contemporary connection to Toynbee? Anyone know? Arnold Jane Toynbee is the grandfather of? All right, well done. Fantastic. OK, so as I said, withdrawal and return. Right? It, it is what it says in the tin. There are moments of incubation and introspection, i.e. the libido is turned inward rather than outward. But as with the hero's journey described by Joseph Campbell, the hero must return to society to, to proverbially bring the gold or treasure hard to attain back to society so that many may benefit. Individuation, then, is not isolation. Rather, one could argue that individuation is relational. And this is implicit in Jung, although in true Jungian fashion, attention is certainly noticeable when comparing his writings. Right? So I, I want us to be a bit more nuanced about the way we think about Jung. Yes, there is certainly a relational aspect in Jung, but at the same time, he kind of creates myths about himself, too. Right? He builds his little Bollingen retreat. He goes away for weeks on end, no electricity, no water. Right? And only the select few are kind of invited to, to visit him there. Right? So again, just a, a bit of tension in Jung's character. Individuation, as we mentioned previously, is not for the faint of heart. It's a very lonely process. There's the danger of inflation. Um, and again, cultivating perhaps a sense that one is better than others. But facing these feelings are part and parcel of the process itself. Individuation means striving towards wholeness which is not perfection, right? So many of you know that Jung forwarded the idea of the shadow, which very quickly you can define as? Yes, anyone? The person of the self, mm -hmm. part of the self that we are not aware of. Sure. We, don't, we suppress. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, anyone else? Yeah. Sure, right? The unwanted or the darker aspects of the personality that we project then onto others, right? But again, Jung was careful to say that, you know, there are positive aspects of the shadow as well, not just the negative, but usually we're referring to the negative parts of the personality. So wholeness entails grappling with the darker aspects of the personality, which includes the shadow. The aim is not to deny uh, these completely, but to enter into conscious relationship with these elements of our character. Now, the archetype of the self is no exception. So we talked about this idea of the bipolarity of archetypes, right? The positive spectrum, the negative spectrum, and potentially different experiences in between as well. There are positive aspects of the self, the access to which can enlarge the personality, but there is also the dark side of the self that can equally overwhelm us. Now, in terms of dream images, um, symbols of the self that may arise in dreams, for example, include mandalas. Right? Mandala is the Sanskrit word meaning magical circle. And it's usually a circular structure cut into four or multiples of four. Right? Now, what's the significance of four for Jung? Perfection. perfection. Not perfection. 
Yeah, wholeness, right, more than anything else. And, you know, again, in the, his method of amplification, which is not entirely unproblematic, he goes to mythology, he goes to symbols and say, well, what comes in force? Well, the best things come in for, right? Four cardinal points. Anything else? Four seasons? Yeah, yeah. Four evangelists, four elements, four suits of cards, four Kit Kats in the bar that you buy at Tesco. <laughs> All right, the best things come in four, ladies and gents, okay? Now, the symbol, uh, or sorry, mandalas as a symbol usually arise in dreams of patience in the fragmentary state, okay? Very interesting, he made the observation that these mandalas actually crop up in the dreams of children whose parents are about to divorce or separate. Right? Can anyone just guess quickly why, what we know of Jung? It's a function of the dream. One function of the dream is to compensate, right? To compensate the conscious position. So, i.e., this symbol of wholeness crops up as a compensation to the fragmentary state, right? It is opposite of the conscious state, and essentially, it's attempt at self-healing or signaling to the, 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 uh, the dreamer that, you know, some, some need to, to rebuild oneself is actually required. Now, you could apply this to Jung, going back to the Red Book period, right? These are two mandalas that he created during the Red Book period. So that covers the 1913 to 1916, although he keeps adding to it until about the 1930s, okay? Now, if we're contextualizing this, 1913, 1916, he really breaks with Freud about 1912. I mean, the most devastating letters around 1912, there's a bit of a rapprochement, but ultimately everything kind of ends by 1913. You could argue, you know, again, being very careful not to kind of delve into psychobiography, that these mandalas were attempt at self-healing, right? Or an expression, if you will, at self-healing after that very difficult experience with Freud. Okay, now mandalas go on to form you know, a central place, if you will, in his psychology. This is the one he drew in relation to alchemy. And for Jung, it is a universal expression, right? Perhaps more so then than it is now, but this is something that transcends cultures, right? And he saw these mandalas being painted or, you know, cropping up in dreams of Westerners who at that time may not have had a great deal to do with the East to a certain extent or to, you know, with Eastern thinking. Now, Take this with a pinch of salt. Okay, these images, these next two images, were created by someone obviously who has a bit of artistic merit, a bit of talent, um, but was in Jungian therapy as well. Okay, and rest assured, there's no copyright issue. These were taken from public archives, the welcome specifically. Now, this first one's very interesting. Okay, it's not potentially a mandala per se, but you have this massive whirlpool almost. Right? And water usually denotes the unconscious. Okay? And you have a few fragmentary bits, personalities, looking down at the water. How would you interpret that? There might be a certain fear about delving into the unconscious. Right? So if the unconscious is represented by the water. There might be a certain fear of what one may find in that huge drop, if you will. Right? Young talks about dropping in the Red Book. Okay, now very interesting. This is also a, 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 like a, the meaning of something unstoppable mm -hmm. pouring down sure. connecting to levels of reality. Sure. Because there is a crack that can't be 
Interesting. Toast. Interesting. Yeah. Sure. 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 Well, no, it's interesting because one thing with therapy is that you know, the analyst may suggest certain interpretations, but it doesn't become it's it's not the the penultimate interpretation. It only becomes an interpretation when it resonates with the analysand. Right? And that's why with analysis it really is the co-construction of meaning. Any analyst, a contemporary analyst who's kind of coming to you and say, you're resisting, you're resisting, you're resisting. Well, that's not the way contemporary analysis works. So it really has to be an, a, a meeting of minds. And again, the analyst might be able to suggest certain interpretations, but again, it, it doesn't become an interpretation unless it really sits well with that individual. Right? But again, Jung was saying that we should look at dreams in multiples, not just kind of one, right? So by the same token, let's look at another image that was created in the context of this therapy. Right? So that's interesting. Anyone hazard? So again, mandalas could potentially come in, in many shapes or forms. This is again my subjective interpretation. You have the circular structure here. You have four, right, four tracks, if you will four rails, four points, leading to a tree, right? Or blending, if you will, or the, or the tracks are kind of forming the foundation and the roots of the tree itself. Now, for many of you who know a bit about symbolism or read a bit about Jung, a tree is a symbol of the self. What's that? Pardon? Identity. Eternity. Okay. Fantastic. You want to elaborate a bit more about that? Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sure. 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 So, Jung writes a few essays, one particularly about the symbolism of a tree, right? And long story short, because we're running out of time, a tree is a symbol of the self. Why does he say this? Well, James Hillman was a Jungian who kind of broke away, popularized Jungian ideas in many ways. You know, he was on Oprah. Everyone got really jealous because he made tons of money, as you would. Um, but he has this idea of the acorn theory, which is essentially a modification of, the in, of individuation, right? You plant an acorn, it's destined to become a tree, right? It, you know, that, that's, if you will, the urge of it, okay? It becomes the tree, but every tree is going to be different. Now, there are going to be recognizable traits of treeness, okay? There are going to be roots, there's going to be a trunk, they're going to be branches, right? And they're going to be leaves. But every tree is also different, right? The roots will be different. The trunk will be different. The knots will be different. The leaves will be different. The number of branches will be different, right? So that's really what he meant by the self, right? That there is something universal and typical, but there's also a certain amount of difference within as well. Now, again, as with all things, and this is the academic in me, take this with a pinch of salt as well, right? Because if this... If these images were created in the context of Jungian analysis, you could say that individual might have been immersed in the terms, right? Trees, self, fours, right? So it all could be highly influenced by, by the kind of therapeutic context itself. But still very interesting, actually, some lovely images. And if you do have time, they're, they're readily available in the Welcome Archives, okay? Um, 
Right, so just continuing on a little more. Sorry, jump the gun here. So the self or these mandalas are a universal expression of wholeness. It's not just confined to the East. We can also see it in older European cities, in town centers, and central squares as well. Now, Jung also likened the self to the God image, right? And he runs into trouble because sometimes he conflates it with God, okay? And his debate with Martin Buber um, kind of really highlights that to a certain extent. But you could use it interchangeably, the archetypal self and the God image. There could be multiple expressions of the Godhead, and all are equally valid. So there are different archetypal images of the same archetypal imperative. So as we said, you know, with the example of the tree. What is of the utmost importance for Jung is that we do not get stuck in thinking that a particular image is the definitive one, that one path towards that which we consider divine is any better than others. This leads to an imitation of a pattern rather than creatively living that energy and experience in our own unique way. So he gives the example of the life of Christ, right? And he's really thinking about how Christ is being portrayed in the Gospel of John as this model of perfection, only capable of good, right? And for Jung, this is the tyranny of perfection. There's no negativity, right? It's not a whole or complete image, right? All the negativity is projected onto the devil as the representation of evil, i.e. this does not reside in us, it just resides in that object out there, right? And this is psychological scapegoating. To live as Christ did, um, i.e. this life of perfection, or at least what the, the myth or story tells us, is an absolute impossibility we will be doomed to failure because it is our unique story. We may face similar symbolic challenges and similar archetypal experiences, such as betrayal, death, and rebirth. But the details of that story are for us to create based on our own choices. That is what Jung meant by dreaming the myth onward, to live the typical in our own unique way, to literally flesh out an archetypal story that speaks to the commonality of the human experience. One may note that there is certainly a tension here in Jung, or for some, a blatant contradiction. Was he arguing for the universality of human experience, or like a historian, was he noting the nuance and difference of phenomena based on contextual factors, i.e. the difference between the archetype and the archetypal image? My response is that it's both. It depends on what you need from Jung, right? What do you need from Jung? What image of Jung do you require that satisfies what you want? Um, no one interpretation can really dominate all others. Now, the ambiguity in Jung, some may see this as a weakness, but I see this as one of the strengths of analytical psychology specifically and depth psychology more generally. It seeks to say something both universal and particular about the human experience. Now, regarding the universal aspects, at a deeper level of psyche, we are all interconnected in terms of the experiences we have and the narratives we tell about them. And this potentially could have a very positive healing effect. So just take a very quick example. Usually, you know, when people come to, to therapy, some may have a, what Ford would call a very harsh superego, right? And it, it is really is potentially very devastating. So the someone really begins to kind of attack themselves. They're not kind to themselves. It's all my fault. Oh, I'm such a weirdo. Why did I do that? I'm the reason that that relationship fell apart, et cetera, et cetera. And you keep berating yourself. Okay? Now, what Jung's perspective potentially does is that it moves the framework a little further back into the larger perspective. You're not alone. You're not the only one who experiences this, right? Because if we look to the dream material, etc., 
you can see there might be a myth or a story that speaks to the emotions that you have regarding this specific experience, right? And that hopefully begins to alleviate the harsh superego. You're not alone. You're not the first to experience this. You are not going to be the last person to experience this. And hopefully, you know, that, that can be, if you will, a bridge to further healing. But this universality does not preclude expressing that very universality in different ways. If anything, Jung's distinction between the archetype and the archetypal image presents us not only with an appreciation of cultural and individual differences, but an opportunity to choose and mold our stories in various ways. Jung's archetypal hypothesis, then, does not promote stagnation and the repetition of tradition for tradition's sake, or that we are caught up in some deterministic loop, but an opportunity to constantly restory and, by extension, to renew ourselves through the life cycle. All right. That's it.